Welcome to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. Wow, it's been an exciting week. I had my birthday, I turned 31, and the day after, I had my first ever gig as an MC hosting the Star Wars party at the EMP Museum, the closing party for the Power of Costume exhibit called The Party Strikes Back. It was such a cool experience. I mean, I'll just tell you the highlight of the night, and it'll give you a good idea of what went down. There was a fully articulated R2-D2 that was remote controlled, and this gentleman was standing kind of in the shadows all evening with his remote control controlling this R2-D2 robot, and it was just kind of scuttling about the floor and beeping and blooping and, and being super R2-licious all night long. At the end of the night, there was an hour-long dance party with DJ Obi-Hans Kenobi, and R2 was dancing on the floor, and someone dressed as a Jawa was dancing with R2-D2, and my brain just melted in my mind, and I just collapsed into an orgasm of happiness because it was so fucking awesome. So thank you, EMP Museum, for just having such a great event, and the fact that I got to host was incredible. I dressed as Han Solo, which gave me courage, and it was great and fun. There's some pictures up on Twitter. I have a video of that moment where R2 was dancing with the Jawa, so I'm going to put that up on Twitter as well. Uh, so check it out, at Sci-Fi Project. As promised, this week I have the rest of my conversation with Asher Mandel. Asher's an old friend of mine from San Diego. We hadn't seen each other in about uh, five or six years when we recorded this conversation last week. We had so much fun. Uh, brought you most of the conversation in my last episode, and the rest of it's coming today. We're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff, a whole lot of sci-fi in the second half of the episode. But in the beginning, we're actually going to talk about how Asher is a live sound technician, which I didn't even know. And I used to do that back in San Diego, back in my old life. So it was fun to, to talk to him about that and get a little bit of insight into the industry. He just got done going on tour, being a live sound tech. It's pretty rad. Something else in this episode that I am really fucking excited about. Uh, last week, if you listened to that show, at the end of the show, I played you a song on acoustic guitar called Cosmic Child that I had just written the night before. Uh, and I was in such a creative rush from writing the song that I immediately started recording it to make the synth pop version that's going to be on the sci-fi album. So I have a little bit of work done on that and I'm so in love with it. I can't even tell you how excited I am. And I'm so excited that I'm doing something that I don't know if is a good idea or not, but I'm going to play you at the end of this episode, I'm going to play you the work in progress. Uh, this is the first time since I started the podcast that I've been working on a song for the sci-fi album. And it, it's been in the back of my mind that maybe this would be a fun thing to do. Maybe it would be cool to show you the process from start to finish of creating a song for this album and connect you to the process. I'm just so grateful for anyone who listens to my work. And if there's any way that I can connect you to that work, then then by God, I'm going to try. So at the end of this episode, I will play you the work in progress of Cosmic Child. I'll tell you a little bit more about it when we get to that point. But first off, here's the rest of the conversation with Asher. It's about 40 minutes long. It's a lot of fun. And I'll, I'll be back. I'll be back after. All right, here we go.
for a second. I, mean, I haven't seen you in so long. Um, and for the people who are listening who don't know you, uh, who are you? I mean, so I, <laughs> I know it's a broad question. Um, I don't even know what you do now. Like the last time I saw you was probably five years ago. It might have been at the Halloween party. Oh, that was fun. That was a fun night. That was night. so fun. That's the night I was dressed as Han Solo, and yeah. I just felt like the biggest fucking badass in the universe. I used to throw Halloween parties in my house. It was my favorite thing to do. And you came twice, I think. I know I came for one, for, for just sure. One. And was that the, the year that Brandon was DJing, and he wore like that- DJ Shark Attack or whatever. Shark Attack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He wore this like shark sweater that when you put the hood down, it's got like shark fangs. So he was bent over the DJ booth, and he just looked like a shark, and it was awesome. That was a really fun night. And I had yeah, so much fun. And your solo, solo costume was great. Um, these days I'm still in San Diego. Um, I am an audio engineer by trade. Um, I'm actually in between jobs at the moment. I was just on tour with the tallest man on earth as a monitor engineer filling in on some dates. I didn't know this at all. Um, I didn't know it was going to happen to me either. Actually, um, a fellow that I used to play music with through Brandon, uh, was based in LA for a while and his brothers were there too. And they used to attend bar at this place where, uh, tallest man's tour manager would hang out and, via some, you know, Facebook SOS kind of thing, scheduling conflict, I get hot linked to some thread and I send him my stuff and it was very timely. And the next thing I know, like I'm on a plane to the East coast prepping gear and all of this crazy stuff. And, wow. um, you know, it was one of the best experiences I've had in my life. And if I was working anywhere else at the time, I wouldn't have been able to have seized the opportunity and very grateful so cool. for it. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, I, I've always known that you, like we played music together for a little while. I always known that you've been in that world. I did not know you were a professional audio engineer. Uh, I am. I mean, it's very kind of touch and go, depending yeah. throughout the year and all of that. But I've worked at lots of venues in San Diego. Um, cool. As soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, man, I got like embarrassed for my setup. My setup is fine. I don't know why I'm embarrassed. Like, I like my setup plenty. But I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's judging my audio setup. <laughs> no, come on, dude. I know. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. No, we're, we're all, everyone is their own worst critic. And, for sure. Um, you yeah. Know, I think there is maybe an element of, you know, internalizing self-criticism when you haven't seen someone in a while and you're like yeah. doing your best to put on like a certain kind of face of like confidence and all of that. When in reality, we're just as conf confused and conflicted in our own minds about ourselves as anyone right. else. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all good. I yeah. mean, you're having me here on your show. That's great. We yeah. haven't hung out in years and this here is awesome. we are. This is awesome. I mean, not only we're we hanging out for the first time in years, but it's all like, we'll be able to enjoy it again later yeah. <laughs> when we listen to it. Let's listen to how much fun we had that yeah. day. And I'm, I'm also, I'm having a very good time. This is so much fun. Oh. I, I love just like sitting around talking about shit. I, I did uh, live sound for about four years in San Diego and it is a thankless job. It is hard. I mean, people only tell you, people only like engage with you when they're upset about what you're doing. Uh, and they're almost always upset about what you're doing because it's one of those things where like the artist like doesn't necessarily know what's happening. Uh -huh. And like you have to, get into the booth and turn the mic on before they're going to hear anything in their monitors. And the first thing they always say is like, I don't hear anything in my monitors because they're like worried that they're not going to get the sound they want, but you just haven't done it yet because you're physically not there yet. And it, it's, it's a weird dynamic to have with people. I think the best thing you can do is manage a timeline, which gives you an opportunity to create, you know, in the best situation, you can create uh, an environment that's controlled and you manage the expectations of your artist or your client. Yeah. Um, so that by the time they arrive, you've rung out monitors, the system is tuned and all of that so that they just need to play. And a, and a good artist and a good musician will also have their own experience through that rodeo as well, yeah. where they understand that it's a process and that it's not the same thing as just flicking on a light bulb. 
Of but, course, the engineer's responsibility is to streamline that process as efficiently as one can, but there is a required amount of patience on both parties and an implicit understanding that there is a process yeah. and that if you care about the quality of the work, that it does require time and energy. I'm, I'm laughing because when I, when I set up sound at San Diego State, we would do the Monday night concert series mm-hmm. where we have a ver- like a variety of people from all over the world come in every Monday. Right. And I would, I would have two hours. We get the hall two hours before the show and the artist shows up about an hour before the show. So I don't even get to start setting up until an hour before the artist gets there. And oftentimes the timeline would get messed up where some, oftentimes the artist would get there early and, and I wouldn't get the hall till late. So I don't get to start setting up until the artist is already there. And like that's just pulling out the first cables, you know, for yeah. like a, an, an 18 mic setup with like five or six monitors. And I'm starting that with an hour and a half to go. So that was my experience was, you know, never having the time that I needed. Uh, and then try, trying to manage the, like you said, trying to manage the expectations in an environment that is next to impossible. But then getting it done every week. It was, it was kind of a rush, but it was stressful as fuck. Well, you know, doing that kind of work, you're never going to start off with the best of you know, resources or anything like that. And that's ultimately a function of budget. You know, being on this tour, you know, we get to the venue and we're headlining, you know, these are at headlining venues. so cool, man. And, you know, thousand plus capacity venues on top of doing festivals and all of that too. You know, we we did Newport Folk Fest. Wow. um, Main stage, like prior to like a Roger Waters act. It was crazy. (laughs) Like I got to hear Roger Waters. Oh, you know, sound check, uh, like, you know, a couple of tracks off oh, of Dark Side. You you're know, kidding. As we're loading in, you know, what in the, the morning. What the fuck? That's so fucking awesome. It was insane. I would, oh, I would die to hear Roger Waters' sound check. Yeah, and I got paid to hear it, so. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, I was getting paid to work for another artist while he was sound checking. But, oh, my God. You know. In- incredible. Absolutely. Best. What did he play? What songs did he play? Um, You know, he did, Um, I forget the name of the track, but The Lunatic is on the Grass. Yeah, Loon- from uh, from Dark Side, you know, yeah. the lunatic is you know on the grass. It was that one, and then the very last. It was the last two tracks off of Dark Side. Okay, awesome. Yeah, sorry, I can't remember their track names off the top of my head. Yeah, I can't either. We Which pro- is like a real crime. We were smoking weed when we're listening to Dark Side. I guess, but that's like also a real crime against humanity, where it's like, oh, I can quote like a movie that I don't like, but then I can't even name songs off of one of the greatest rock albums of all time. I mean, yeah. like that's you know, that's something that someone would disown me as a friend for doing. In our defense, I listen to Dark Side as a whole. I, I almost never, when I listen to it, I almost never split it up by song. So it doesn't even occur to me that there are song names because it's just Dark Side of the Moon is one thing. Oh, sure. And that also speaks to like the album being a primary format of music listening yeah. during the release of that album right. and how a lot of recorded music now is like a singles oriented environment and, yeah. you know, EP oriented environment, the internet, especially for new artists, like, you know, you create, you know, song premieres and all this stuff online. Like yeah. it's really moved away from the album in a lot of ways. But having said that, as a sound engineer, you know, your best case situation is you arrive, you know, noonish at a venue, you get two some odd hours of just setting up your own stage. There's not a musician or an artist in the room. You know, you have a stage crew, you line check, everything's clean. You have a guy helping you out on stage to ring out wedges. You know, the front of house dude is, you know, tuning his system as well. And then you have musicians arrive and yeah. you have digital consoles. So you mm-hmm. saved your scene from last night. So yeah. even though if you're tapping into something new and you're going to have to tweak regardless. It's like, a place to start. You have a placeholder and all of that. Yeah. So, you know, it's very streamlined. But I've, much like you, I've worked at community centers. I've worked at, you know, various low budget operations where there's a mismanagement of time or resources or whatever. And you're just slammed. 
And ultimately, you need those experiences to shape you as an engineer. You yeah. need adversity as a professional or, you know, an artist or, a, you know, an artisan to improve your craft. And that's just the nature of anything, you know, resistance, limitations, challenges, you know, that shapes us and forges us as people and enables us to, you know, reach out and touch the stars at our highest potential <laughs> in the best Absolutely. situations. And dude, good on you. That is like a, a hard job. Uh, it, it's one that... I, my first night on the job, I almost quit because it was a traumatic experience. Um, because being screamed at by people on stage happens constantly. Uh, it's tough. Um, and I got much better at it as time went along and I came to enjoy it. But when people would ask me to work in a venue I didn't know, I said no yeah. every time. Yeah, I understand what you mean. I think every year I have like a quote unquote near death experience on the job, <laughs> which like, you know, is traumatizing on one way. Um, I'll share one with you right now. Yeah. Um, I was working for this theater in San Diego and I was mixing a musical, which was like, you know, 10 actors and like a, I don't know, six piece or- orchestra or something like that. Um, and we're doing My Fair Lady, which is, you know, a classic, you know, classic tale. <laughs> and um, and I'm using a digital board and like we had a week of tech and all this stuff and like you think you have all your T's crossed and I's dotted in terms of your settings and all this stuff and you've been very meticulous and I'm working on a digital board and um, I have these user defined keys where rather than touching a bunch of different stuff you just have one button and it group mutes you know all of your actors or something like that or yeah. it group mutes your band where you know it just streamlines your workstation and you don't have to do a bunch of stuff and it just makes you more efficient. Group mutes are great, and I use them all the time with user-defined keys, and I swear by them. Yeah. But what I didn't realize is when we were programming the scene, we had imported some data from a previous scene, and I hadn't checked what the other user-defined keys were. And one button, which was right next to the button I was using most actively, wasn't a group mute. It was jumped to a next scene. Uh-huh. And I actually, and thank God we were in previews, and the designer was there, and we were able to basically, you know... Uh, sort of resuscitate uh, our scene with an open house, but essentially I jumped a scene and then I hadn't, you know, I totally spaced on saving data. And so jumping back to the scene previously, oh, like, no, it's all, all gone. It was all gone. And this is like during a big moment in act two and all this stuff. Oh and it God. was just vicious. And every second felt like a millennium of your life. Yeah. And all you feel inside your heart is wanting to like crawl into a hole and just not exist but you don't have that option. You right. are there live in that moment and the sweat's pouring down your brow and the <laughs> hair is poking out of your neck and like you're just, you know, you're got to make it work. It's trench warfare. You you are Han Solo, your hyperdrive's not working and you got you had Imperials on your tail. What are you going to do? It, it's vicious. You know, turn the ship around and like dock on the back right. of the thing exactly and float it. out with the trash. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hope hope uh, B- Boba's not on your tail. Yeah. Oh man. Um, and I also, I also want to pick your brain a little bit about your uh, your next generation experience. Um, what was it like as a thirty year old adult to jump into that show, which is I I talk about constantly as my absolute favorite show of all time. Well, it was a lot of work in the beginning. First season, it's finding its legs and all of that. But I remember my buddy telling me like, you just as soon as Riker grows its beard, his beard is when it <laughs> it's starts. Beard. <laughs> he he's a thing. He's not a person. Yeah, he's just like so slutty. He like he. He transcends ger- gender, uh, you know, <laughs> like that gender classification where he falls in love with a person with no gender. Oh yeah, he does that, and then he also like is undercover, you know, right, and has to break out. And she's like, she basically like, uh, not bribes him. She like blackmails him sexually in order to. But get But he's him. into it, and that's BB Newirth from fucking Frasier and Cheers, man. 
Oh, I didn't know that. I've never yeah. watched Fraser. Fraser. That's oh, probably, I know it takes place here, right? Oh, it's so good. Put it on your list. All it's, right. It's, uh, it's my favorite sitcom. Okay. Right now I've been watching Bored to Death, which has its moments. Yeah. And, uh, it's mostly it, because of Ted Danson. I was going to say, it's got Ted Danson. That's a good start. Yeah. That show really should have just been about Ted Danson. <laughs> I watched the first episode, and the the thing that I loved was Ted Danson. He's the best. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's such a great fucking dude. I just love watching him do anything. Yeah. And Ted Danson was on Cheers, which had Frasier. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and actually, Kelsey Grammer guest starred in one episode of Next Generation, and we're back. <laughs> <laughs> the threads of our lives. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so first season's tough to get through. Riker grows a beard. and then Yeah. Uh, season two's great, and everything like just keeps its foot on the gas through that. What I love about Star Trek is, um, and it's kind of funny because whenever I'm like feeling bummed out about like work or life or whatever, like I'm yeah. thinking... Man, I wish there was like a real like, you know, Federation Academy, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where everything's like for right and not might kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I love the whole show. I think, you know, working on the Enterprise is great because it's everyone who really wants to be there and do and perform at their highest level. Um, you know, it's like a high, you know, stress, high reward kind of job. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really cool the confluence of different backgrounds and species and all of that that that's there. It's through a lens of science fiction utopia, which is very rare. Um, I love Picard. You know, there's so many ridiculous books out there on business leadership and like you know <laughs> business ethics and all of this stuff, which is written through the lens of Star Trek episodes where Picard is a real driving force to it. You know, he's such a stalwart, resolute, fair you know, leader, he's like a guy who you want as a dad and a guy you want to work for and like a person who you aspire to be in yourself. You yeah, know? totally. Um, he's the ultimate, uh, like general scholar. Yeah. Yeah. General scholar, dad boss. And like, <laughs> yeah. and like, you're going to say dad bod for a second. I was like, I don't know about that. He's got what? a nice dad bod, but I think he's getting like, you know, he's yeah. like, he's got a good granddad bod. If anyone has a dad bod on that show, it's Riker season three forward. <laughs> You know, I you know, I would be remiss to say that I don't command the franchise as confidently as your knowledge, but um I've really enjoyed the whole journey and yeah. it's an on again, off again kind of thing. It's like, you know, just a uh it's a lover that you feel comfortable with, that mm-hmm. you don't really need to like have a whole lot of defining rules about the framework of your relationship other than when you're together, you're just happy and glad to be there. That's and cool. You're both in your own different places in life and when fate conspires you two to be together, it's great. <laughs> and that's all there is to it. And, you know, interest waxes and wanes in its own seasons. Interesting. And that's been my relationship with the next generation. Well put, sir. Very well said. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just starting season six, um, which has been, you know, kind of touch and go for me, I think, because it's like a two-parter season finale and season premiere between five and six. Um, but season five was great. I was really struck by some very intense Picard-related episodes where one of them is about that uh, pure-blood Betazoid who's used as a gift for, mm. like, two warring nations that are, you know, going to treaty with each other. And she's there as a peace offering. And, you know, Betazoid... Per- perfect mate. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was the episode. And Betazoids are these, you know intuitive empaths that can read your mind and thus you know was she a betazoid i thought she was something else that was like well well, either way it doesn't matter she like she imprints on the person she's with and becomes the perfect mate and she was supposed to be a gift for someone else and she ends up imprinting on picard right and picard you know who like is a very tough shell to crack i mean there is 
various implied stories of his relationship with Beverly mm-hmm. and, you know, other relationships that he had maybe as a young man where you revisit through some kind of time traveling episode, but you never have a contemporary, um, you know, present day love story for Picard, at least with my experience with the franchise so yeah. far. And here we are, you know, it's a young, beautiful empath and those types of creatures can read your thoughts and know you better than you think you know yourself and read your deepest, darkest thoughts. And to see that in relation to Picard, who is a steadfast, you know, the group before myself, by the book, by the rules, you know, he was a hot-headed young blood in his day, which is, you know, alluded to several times in the series, but he's not a Kirk kind of guy, you know. He's right. a very thoughtful, poetic, measured tone you know, concerned, invested person. Yeah. And here we are with this ultimate temptation in front of him. And for all we know, there is an alternative Star Trek storyline where he ultimately just break ranks and, you know, goes rogue and, you know, you know, gives into temptation with the empath. But, and and we see that written on his face throughout the whole episode, you know, he's torn the whole time and she's, you know, this gift is supposed to be given to this guy with the other warring tribe and he's a huge douchebag and all of this <laughs> stuff. And like he's being torn apart because we want Picard to be happy. And it's a story about him not being able to have that really. Yeah. And the really interesting moment in that is at the end where she loves Picard and will never be able to not love Picard because that's how her species works. But decides to still go with the man she's supposed to be with because Picard's duty and sense of honor has imprinted on her. So she's willing to sacrifice her entire life of happiness to stop this war from continuing, which you know Picard would do in a second. If he could give up his personal happiness to stop a war, of course he would. Right. And that's a very interesting point. I mean, the whole franchise kind of hangs on that, you know, the greater good kind of element and the decisions that are rooted there. Yeah. And the conflict, you know, personal conflict versus, you know, the the better what's better for society and all of that i think um and we see that you know those are questions we all wrestle with in our personal lives i'm gonna pause the conversation for just a second for a quick spoiler warning we're about to discuss the inner light it's one of the best episodes of star trek the next generation if you haven't seen it it's from season five you want to skip ahead. You want to watch this episode before you have it uh, described to you and discussed. So uh, skip ahead about six minutes. Asher's going to bring up The Magic of Myth. It's a book by uh, Joseph Campbell, and we're going to talk about that. And then you're in the clear from that point on. Uh, the six minutes of discussion about the inner light are really great. So, I mean, you definitely want to watch the episode and then come back and, and take a listen to it. Because we actually talked about uh, something from the last episode of this podcast which was Asher's bicycle crash and what happens in those moments when you fear that, you know, maybe your life is not going to be the same ever again and kind of tied into our discussion of the inner light because something happens to Picard in that episode. So you have been warned. Skip ahead about six minutes from right now. Um, One other great Picard episode in season five I remember is um, the inner light where he goes into that coma and like he wakes up in some village and he's like, no, I'm a starship captain. Like, what am I doing here? This is all wrong. You're going to make me start crying if we talk about this episode. Oh, it's a really good one. I haven't watched that many episodes. I'm literally getting teary eyed just even thinking about it. That's uh, in most people's lists. That's number one. In, In most like lists of best episodes of Star Trek, the next generation, that's number one. I think that's a great episode to watch if you're like kind of in a, 
situation in a relationship or like, you know, ultimately like you want to make the decision that's going to enrich you as a person through the lens of like couplehood, because that whole episode is about like this career guy being sucked into some other situation where he basically is forced to become a family man. And like, he basically comes to the realization where like, well, whatever universe I was in where I was this, you know, captain of a Federation starship and like on a certain path and a certain role and duty, like that does not exist. Yeah. Like I am here in this primitive village where, you know, we're in a major drought and I need to, you know, you know, put on my big boy shoes and like be a man (laughs) and just do what's right for this time and place. And like, this is the woman that I'm bound to in this marriage. And we ultimately see his life very enriched by being, a dutiful husband by being a dutiful family man. You know, he turns out to be a grandfather in that episode and he, you know, becomes a very invested member of the community and is constantly, you know, advocating for different solutions for the drought and what could be a a productive next step for the community and all of that. You know, it's about basically leaving the life that you thought you had behind and embracing what's in front of you. And I think Mm, beautiful, well put, well said. Thank you. Uh, and as someone who's had like a traumatic, uh, body breaking experience, like you were talking about earlier, um, was there a moment where you had a, a realization that like, this is what I'm dealing with and this is what's real. And now I just move forward and it doesn't matter where I was before this because that no longer exists and I just have to move forward. What was your recovery like? Was it like that? Um, well, I was actually really fortunate. Um, I was only in the hospital overnight and it was only- Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, nothing was broken. Nothing had to be rehabilitated. That's incredible. It was a miraculous experience um, because I dodged a major bullet and really, I mean, I had this really gnarly hip contusion and it was a very uh, vivid and colorful bruise. Yeah. Uh, very, and, you know, considerable in size. But- Nothing was broken. Nothing had to be rehabilitated. There was no physical therapy. I was very lucky. You know, my parents live in San Diego too. I could just, you know, I went home with them and stayed in one of their guest bedrooms and it was very, very clean. And, you know, obviously it wasn't uh, an inexpensive experience to have uh, being in the hospital overnight. But uh, fortunately, you know, it could have been a lot worse. But So you just, you had that moment on the ground where you hit hit by the car and you didn't know if you're legs were going to work ever again. Like you had that moment. Um, yeah. I mean, I was in an immense amount of pain and I yeah. couldn't feel anything. Re- I didn't, I was afraid to move anything because I didn't know if anything was broken or didn't, yeah. couldn't respond or whatever. And it was, you know, a very uh, intense moment of pain and physical pain and, you know, major confusion yeah. uh, and, you know, uncertainty. And, um, you know, I think when anyone has, you know, a traumatic event, you know, I think we take a major reevaluation of where we are, what we're doing, what's important. And I think that is ongoing in our lives as we progress in our age and leave certain elements of youth behind us and refine ourselves, which is really what is important to me, what makes me happy, what enriches me, what brings me alive, what is going to stabilize me as a person yeah. and inform educated choices and productive things that are healthy for me. Yeah. And you know, nothing can prepare you for those things, but I, I truly believe that watching things like, like good science fiction, particularly something like the inner light, the episode of next generation, uh, while it can't necessarily prepare you for that, it can maybe, uh, build some of the pathways in your brain that will be required to deal with it. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, and I'll 
go on record by saying that I can sometimes be very ungraceful when it comes to dealing with change mm. and, um, you know, requiring certain behaviors or mindsets, mindsets to be modified and how I once looked at things, you know, that's, you know, isn't value, valid or relevant anymore. Um, I think the inner light provides a lot of great frame, framework in deconstructing our own preconceptions about what we think is right or appropriate or, you know, or even real. About, yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, social constructs, you know, constructs and relationships, personal relationships, romantic pursuits, professional pursuits, what we think is important and appears to be valid. You know, all that mattered to Picard before he went into that coma was USS Enterprise, huh. you know, get it done right, fairly, prime directive, you know, kind of get her done kind of mindset. <laughs> and he doesn't have a way back to that. Yeah. You know, he has to start over. He has to have a huge shift in perspective about who he is and what's important. And I think we have moments of reckoning like that all the time. And it doesn't have to be some crazy traumatic event. It can be about a person that you're pursuing romantically and elements of commitment and shedding your shell of ego and what you think to be of personal value to yourself for the greater good of that relationship. Wow. Or the decision to no longer pursue a relationship and what is the greater value and good is yourself as a person and what's going to enrich you. And these are all very difficult choices that we wrestle with. The best thing you can do as an individual um, is just be here now. Yes, absolutely. Be in the fucking moment. Mm -hmm. Because it's your life to live. And if you're not in the moment, you're not living it. Exactly. And I think there's a great companion piece that we um, I would recommend for readers out there. Um, it's called The Magic of Myth, and it's basically a companion piece to a Smithsonian exhibit that accompanied a Star Wars exhibit um, in like the late 90s and early 2000s. And it um, features analysis of the philosophy and mythology author Joseph Campbell yeah. analyzing the three movies. And he's talking about a lot of different stories and the hero's journey and all of that. And he's looking at it through the lens of the mystic marriage between Han Solo and Princess Leia. <laughs> and, um, you know, Han Solo doesn't, you know, has his own evolution through the series. Um, you know, he, in episode four, he transcends his selfish and cynical nature and, ultimately decides to work for the team. Yeah. You know, and in the time leading up to episode five in Empire Strikes Back and during those events, you know, he's not just transcended himself, but now he's sort of in service of Princess Leia's surrogate father, the Rebellion. And then it's not just about working for her surrogate father, the rebel, the rebels, or, you know, transcending him, himself as a person, but then also acknowledging that his heroic acts have been an honor, which is really a very key moment when he's being frozen into carbonite. It's not really about Han Solo being this like cocky posturing guy with, I know, because he's not presuming to be a tough guy. That's him at his most vulnerable state in the, huh. in the franchise. Well, that, and when he's unfrozen as well. Yeah. But in Empire Strikes Back, that is him at his rawest, most vulnerable emotional self. He says, I know. It's not about him being like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's about him saying, it's like, oh know. my God, I know. Not even that, but it's like, I've you know put it all on the line to try to save you. I've put it all on the line to try to get you out of the situation. I've put it all on the line to basically you know fight these assholes with, you know, a deck, deck stack, stacked against me because, you know, the Millennium Falcon's in a state of disrepair yeah. and you're being pursued by, you know, a squadron of Imperial Star Destroyers and all of this stuff and everything's against you. And it's just like, 
I've been fighting this uphill battle this whole movie. I know you love me. That's why I've been doing this. Wow. What a great, what a great way to say it, to phrase it. Cause it's, it's such a, it's such a moment, such a big moment. And to, I mean, you could talk for hours about what it is about that moment that makes it work. It's one of those things that when you're a kid, it works for you and you don't know why. And that's a really good description of why. That's really cool. It's, it's bumming me out a little about Return of the Jedi and that I feel like Han Solo doesn't have an arc in Return of the Jedi. You know, it's, I watched it like a week ago, and um, it's pretty interesting because Return of the Jedi is not about Han Solo at all. It's about Luke's kind of final... It's, that movie really is kind of about Luke and Vader. Absolutely, which it should be. Uh-huh. But I also think that for the emotional... I think the emotional piece that's missing from Return of the Jedi is is the Han arc, which has been driving the story in a lot of ways because Han is everyone's favorite character. Han deciding to be on board with the Rebellion is a big part of the audience deciding to be on board with the universe, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Han reaches that moment at the end of Empire where he is, you know, basically being sacrificed, um, and like you said, like understanding what's important to him and... And it's such a powerful moment. Uh, it could have it could have been a very powerful thing to explore in Return of the Jedi, his his love for Leia and him like shedding off his smuggler self, mm-hmm. which he did. But it's not talked about or addressed. It's just like he's all of a sudden ready for it in Return of the Jedi, which he shouldn't be because he's been frozen in carbonite. He should be exactly how he was in Empire. But and then learning to grow, learning to process the experience of lost losing all this time. All these huge things happen to him that aren't addressed at all, and it's frustrating. Yeah, and we don't really get like any kind of like Han Lando thing at all because I'm like there's yeah. like there there's like a a rich landscape of emotional baggage to be explored in that. For narrative. sure, um, you know, you get like a little bit of like Han story in there through a limited exchange with him being unfrozen and Leia, yeah. and there's also great symbolism here too. It's like the element of unmasking yourself, you know. We meet Leia in episode four as this like tough, no, you know, no nonsense chick. Yeah. And by Return of the Jedi, she removes her tough exterior costume and she is this sensuous woman of deliverance for Han Solo. Yeah. Um, But we only get that in like a limited exchange. It's not really explored. But I would love to shift gears to a comedic level and suggest that for any of you internet wizards out there, I would love to see like a silly little... Not like a gif, but like a short little clip of like she blinded me with science married to Han being unfrozen and being like, I can't see anything. <laughs> and being unfrozen by Leia. What a great idea. Yeah. Oh, man. If if you make this, uh, put it up on Twitter and tag me uh, at Sci-Fi Project so that I can see it. Because <laughs> I'm really into that. She blinded me. She blinded me with science. <laughs> um, so I totally interrupted you earlier when you were talking about Chris Pratt. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of... <laughs> Talking um, about Jurassic World. Yes. I've, I've been a, a real tough um, stickler for like, you know, the art and advocating for, you know, critical detail. But I'm going to say that I think they missed a big component of entertainment value by not featuring Chris Pratt shirtless in <laughs> Jurassic Park 4 because you're basically <laughs> pitching him as like this swashbuckling Indiana Jones type guy. And like... You're in this tropical environment. You're on your you're on your moped, you know, with your raptors and all of that. All you're missing is like your whip. And I does he have a whip? He's like working on his motorcycle at his like little camper station outside of the park, you know, having a bud. He's just a good old boy, you know. Yeah. 
he's a self-sufficient dude, you know, and I love women, you know, I've a predominant, my predominant sexual activities have been heterosexual, but like, why is he not featured without his shirt? That's all right. I'm saying. And he's, he's a, a damn sexy man. He's extremely sexy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, Chris Pratt has actually been interviewed recently talking about how objectification is not the problem. It's just unequal or unequal objectification, which, uh, Naomi, my last guest and I talked about, about how like objectification is going to continue to happen and might not necessarily be the worst thing, but let's just make it equal. Let's objectify men and women equally because there's a huge imbalance. And uh, Chris Pratt is prime objectification real estate. Let's let's take that shirt off and take a peek. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Uh, the time is now to seize that moment. Yeah, totally. What do you think about the rumors that Chris Pratt might play Indiana Jones? I haven't been following that. I uh, well, I'm at a case, point. I'm at a point. There's a rumor that Chris Pratt might play Indiana Jones. What do you think? Um, I mean, yeah, he'd be a good casting choice. I don't really follow the Indiana Jones series as closely. I liked Raiders. I liked uh, Last Crusade, Temple of Doom. You know, wasn't my thing. But I've yeah. only seen these movies like once each, and like Crystal Skull was a joke in my opinion. For sure. I'm 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 pretty sequeled out these days. Like, I'm yeah. going to see episodes seven, eight, and nine, but, like, that's just because, like, I'm in too deep with Star Wars at this point. Like, I can't right. not see them. You can't pull out now. No, no. Like, I'm <laughs> in it for life, for better or worse. You've already impregnated Star Wars. There's no reason to pull out now. No, like, I'm in, like, deep in, like, a Hicktown, Red State Central, and, like, I'm shotgun wedding to Star Wars. Like, there's no way right. I can't see those movies. Sure. Yeah. I yeah. love sequels. I There's a comfort to me in seeing seeing a story that I know expanded upon, uh, if they do it well. I mean, I love TV shows, you know? Like, I, I love coming home and watching a TV show. I know the characters. Something new will happen. My brain's a little exhausted from being at work all day long. I, want, I don't want to have to try too hard to understand the world I'm in. I want to know the world and then enjoy something new in that world. So that's how I feel when I watch, like, Jurassic World. It's like, I know this world. This is a great addition. This makes me happy. Uh, I love new content. I'm not saying I don't want new content. Uh, but I'm a person who is building this whole sci-fi project off of nostalgia, off of pre-existing stuff. You know, I write like songs about E.T. and Star Trek, and um, I write songs about original sci-fi stories also because I like both. You know, I don't, I don't have any problem with living in the land of, of reboots and stuff. Uh, I love the Marvel Universe. I love the fact that they're building something off of uh, pre-existing material because it's been tried and tested for decades, this whole comic book universe. Um, I think that's really adding a lot to our cinematic landscape at the moment. I think Disney's doing an incredible job of delivering uh, through Marvel and hopefully through Star Wars, delivering new content to to the general fandom that fits and is welcome and adds to the the substance of the universe. I appreciate what you're saying. Um, what I kind of experienced through sequels and reboots is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, and I have these same experiences with listening to bands too. Um, but with movies specifically, you know, as a young adolescent person, we see, you know, movies come out when we're kids and we're imprinted upon those experiences. And so it's not just about whether Empire Strikes Back was like a great movie or not, but it was like about being young and seeing it and being yes. blown away. Yes. You know, it's not about like whether or not Weezer was a good band, but it was about like being young and being stoked, like on those first two records when Absolutely. you were a kid. Absolutely. Um, so the mantle of challenge is kind of twofold for both parties. It's on the listener and the viewer to continue challenging themselves and staying abreast to current 
pieces of content in music, movies, art and entertainment and, you know, deciding for yourself what you like and cultivating your opinion and curating your own aesthetic and what you like and dislike and what you think works and what doesn't work. And then it's on the fan and the viewer to kind of put that uh, feedback into the radar input system of the industry because they're also in a situation where they require that feedback from feedback and audiences of, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, obviously, I don't think anyone in the right mind is going to try to reproduce The Phantom Menace, but they are going to use the CGI aesthetic for those kinds of films. Um, and, you know, studios, production studios, you know, and high-level artists and entertainers need to also understand, you know, this ever-evolving landscape of what works and what doesn't work and what is quality content and what's not, because I think there's some indisputable sources that have come before our time, which are basically benchmarks of what is the standard and what the benchmark is. And, you know, how well can you innovate around that? How well can you break from that mold, establish yourself, you know, as an artist and entertainer or a filmmaker and, you know, what works and what doesn't work? Because, you know, for every success, there's like a million failures. And for every like one good idea, there's like a thousand fold you know, shit ideas that can only get you to that one good idea kind of moment. Mm -hmm. And so the landscape and the conversation is always evolving. And, you know, I have my moments of like opinions and like, I need to tell you about X, Y, or Z. And then there's times where I'm like, I'm just like so sequeled out. I don't care. Like they're going to make whatever they want to make. And it's kind of like almost analogous to like political apathy where it's like Republicans, Democrats, who gives a shit like the world's fucked kind of thing. (laughs) But like, you know, in order for like whatever twisted form of democracy the United States exists in, like it's, the impetus and the burden of the citizen to be engaged and communicative and express their voice and make it heard because for better or worse, we're all kind of stuck in the landscape that we're in right now and we're not getting out of it until we advocate for ourselves, whatever that means to the individual. Beautiful. (laughs) Perfect. I mean, so good. This has been an absolute pleasure. It's not only wonderful to see you, but wonderful to sit down and talk to you and it's been so fucking awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Asher. Uh, can you plug yourself a little bit? Are you doing any music projects or anything like that you want to plug? Um, sure. Uh, at the moment, I'm uh, not playing with anybody. I'm just kind of jamming a little bit here and there. Um, I am moving away from songwriter kind of stuff, but if anyone needs like a real solid riff tech, um, I think I'm always at my best coming up with riffs and all of that. Um, <laughs> I have real like pretty girls make graves at the drive-in, you know, mathy noodly stuff that stops on a dime. So if you're ever looking for like uh, an additional guitar player, I'm always happy to jump into something. Um, and ideally, like I've written a lot of music over the years, so I'm happy to jump into something where you just need a player and a hired gun. I'm almost like kind of in like that mercenary mode for playing music. Yeah. Um, same thing if you're like a filmmaker or whatever, like I do improv, I fancy myself an on again, off again comedian. I don't have any projects coming up, but if you've heard anything that I've said on this episode that is fetching to your ears, like (laughs) I play music, I tell jokes, I do stuff on stage. Um, I'm a live sound tech, uh, and I'm a fun guy to get to know if you're just looking for a hiking trail buddy, hit me up. (laughs) Uh, Instagram, derelict space vessel, DM me, bro. (laughs) Asher Mandel thank you so much for joining me on the podcast always a pleasure Uh, and and we're done that's it All right, sounds great there you have it folks that is the rest of the conversation with Asher 
we went out later that night with his girlfriend and just had a wonderful time. Uh, we went to Ballard, which I don't do often because I live on Capitol Hill and Ballard's just so far. Uh, but we had so much fun. It was so great to see him. I keep saying we had so much fun, uh, but it's because it's true. So moving on, a uh, couple things I want to touch on really quick. There's some really fun stuff coming up in future episodes of the podcast. Uh, last night, I just recorded a crossover episode with Turn Up the Lady Bro, which is another local podcast here in Seattle, run by my friends Heather Bartels and Katie Tippy. We watched Alien together, and then we recorded this podcast. Their podcast is about horror movies and dating and feminism, and obviously mine is about sci-fi, so Alien seemed like a great thing to kind of cross our genres together, and we also talked about dating. So the dating half of it is going to be on their podcast, and the Alien half is going to be on my podcast. I think. I think that's how it's going to shake out. It was, it was wild. Heather and I used to date, and then talking about dating ended up being really intense. So we both kind of had this sort of catharsis. Yeah, I mean, how often do you get the chance to sit down and go on the record with someone that you had a failed relationship with and maybe try to get a little bit of information as to why? Uh, it was it was, it was was a hard conversation to have, but it was also really valuable. And I learned a lot about myself and learned a lot about Heather and and I also learned that Katie likes to watch these things go down. <laughs> After that, I will get back to going through every season of Next Generation. I know I, I did seasons one and two with Audrey. We're going to do season three. It's coming. I don't know when it's coming. We both kind of felt like we wanted to rewatch before we kept going. Because I am currently going through a rewatch of The Next Generation since it was all released in HD with the remastered versions on Netflix. I just finished season one today because I like to watch at my lunch breaks at work. And it was fucking awesome. It was so incredible I, to see the, the series with fresh eyes. And I... I've said many times that season one is not my favorite season, but to see it remastered and to see it from the point of view of, wow, this show actually looks great, really made me reconsider every episode and enjoy almost all of them much more than I ever have in the past. So I can't even imagine what's going to happen when I get to you know seasons three through seven, which are, in my estimation, the core of what made that show brilliant. As much as I love seasons one and two, it's seasons three through seven that I think have this mass appeal to all of humanity that make it such an important show to watch. I'm just, now I'm getting preachy. I'm going to shut up. So we will do that. Season three is coming and um, I'm hoping to get my friend Ian, who is a Star Trek expert to join us. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it's coming soon. Another show that's coming up uh, is going to be with Annika Sela, who was on episode nine when we read I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison. We're going to be doing a podcast about Brazil, the Terry Gilliam movie, which I've never seen. So I'm going to see it for the first time this week. And then Annika is going to come on the show and we're going to discuss this together. Entertaining shit will go down on this show. So keep listening. Okay. The main event Super duper excitement moment. I'm going to play you my work in progress of my brand new song, Cosmic Child. As I described on the last episode, this song has been kicking around in my brain for about six months and finally came out. It's like a weird uh, like birthing gesticulation process for songwriting in my brain where it just kind of tumbles around like a tumbleweed and then all pops out of my mouth at one moment. It finally happened about a week ago, the day before I recorded uh, or released the last podcast. 
and I had that acoustic version of it on the last episode. Uh, right after that, I started recording the synth pop version. I pulled out my uh, Roland MKS-70. Is that what it's called? MKS-70? I believe so. My, my synthesizer from the 80s, which I found on eBay. I bought it for $500. It's a 12-voice analog polyphonic synthesizer, which can actually be played as two six-voice synthesizers in one. So you can have... Uh, like split tones where you have one six-voice synthesizer on your left hand and then another on your right hand on the same keyboard. It's a brilliant tool. I love it so much. It was such a great find. Uh, that's going to be the main synthesizer you hear for the uh, the higher tones. And then the lower tones is a Korg Volca Keys, which is such an incredible analog synthesizer that was just released within the last couple of years. These things are tiny. They only cost like 80 to 100 bucks. Uh, and you can find a ton of them used on eBay for maybe even less than that. It's amazing that Korg has come out with this Volca series of analog synthesizers that make analog sound approachable and easy to learn and affordable for, you know, for anybody. Well, most anybody, you know, for, for some people, for people that have $80, it's affordable. So that's going to be the bass sound. So right now I just have those two sounds, plus I have Drum Machine. It's actually a, the Korg uh, vocal beats from the same series of synthesizers. The Drum Machine is mostly analog, and it has a couple of PCM, Pulse Cold Modulation, digital sounds built into it that you can tune uh, and then record the tuning of that in real time. I mean, you can tune the analog sounds as well, but you can't record your changes which is a nice thing about having this analog-digital hybrid device is you can record your changes. Uh, so you'll hear some cool noises in the drum machine that are like, pew, boop, boop. That kind of stuff is uh, with the, the PCM, the digital sounds. My friend Barton, who's been on the podcast before, is the one who turned me on to this whole series of vocal synthesizers. He used them when he did the soundtrack for the game Dungeon Highway, which was a like a smash hit uh, pocket game that his company Substantial put out and he wrote the music for it. And I just love the sound so much of what he did that I had to get these synthesizers. So I actually bought the Korg vocal bass from him that I still use when I play live sometimes. So I use the vocal keys for the bass sound because that one has a, uh, a function on it where you can play in fifths. So you'll play one note, but it will play the fifth above that as well. So the bass line is all done in fifths. And then I have this great sound that I designed uh, on the Roland MKS-70 analog synthesizer for the, uh, the, higher, the higher tones. There's going to be more. There's going to be more synthesis going on. I have a lead line that I want to add in there. And then the most important thing that I want to point out is that this is a throwaway vocal take. Not to say that I don't like it. I do like it. But it was one take. And it was just to get the idea down on paper, so to speak, of what the vocals were supposed to be. So I had something sitting in the mix so I could hear it to see if there's enough synthesizer going on, see what needs to be added, see how much more texture and timbre needs to go in there around the voice. There's going to be a lot of doubling happening in the voice, especially in the last chorus. I want that to be really rich and full of a bunch of voices. There's going to be some harmony going on as well. But for now, it's just one take, uh, just one take straight through, the pitch is pretty good. It's not, you know, the best that I can sing it. I really want to get the sort of uh, what's the word? The the sort of archival vocal take that I'm going through, where it's the the ultimate version that I can sing 
which is a dangerous thing because I get kind of stuck in that when I'm recording where I just really want to have the perfect vocal take. I want it to have the perfect texture, the perfect pitch, the perfect delivery, warmth, uh, all these things that go through my mind when I'm recording, which makes it really hard and makes it uh, intimidating to sit down and record. And it's something I'm trying to get over. It's nice to just do one take like this where it doesn't matter if it's perfect or not because I find special moments of magic inside of the delivery that I wouldn't have necessarily thought of if I'm thinking too hard about what I'm doing. Uh, long story short, don't fall too in love with this version of this song because it will change. And I know it's dangerous to release something that isn't complete because people will get used to it, which is actually something that Johnny Unicorn and I talked about in episode three or four of the podcast really early on. We talked about the fact that whatever people hear first will kind of get stuck in their brain, which is a danger in doing this. And it's something that I'm aware of and am nervous about. But I feel like the the risk outweighs the reward of having the opportunity to travel on this journey with me as I create this song. Because every song on the sci-fi album is really a journey. And the reason I'm recording one song at a time is so I can put myself into that really intense headspace of what is this song? When I was recording Traveler, I just felt like this jubilant child the whole time for how for like the couple of months that I was working on it just because I was having so much fun with the process. I'd never done something so poppy and so energetic and so kind of silly almost. And like the saxophone solo is just ridiculous in the most awesome way. And I just love everything about it so much. And it was cool to live in that space. This song, Cosmic Child, is so chill and so real. And it's coming from this like deep emotional place of something that I remember from childhood that I, that I explained in the last episode. Okay, well, I think that's about enough setup, and you know, hopefully you enjoy hearing about the process that goes into this. I've never released anything that wasn't mixed, so that makes me nervous also. But, but you know what? I mean, you know, you listen to this podcast, you're, you're a special breed. You're, you're in the inner circle. So, so let's go for it. Here is the work in progress of Cosmic Child, and when the song's done, the episode will be done, and I will miss you terribly, but I'll see you next week.